Well, good afternoon. It's a privilege to be here with you. I'm excited about uh, the opportunity to look into God's Word together. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with me to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. Uh, my family was not able to come today, but I'll just tell you a little bit about myself and my background. I've uh, been married for 25 years this coming summer. Uh, my wife, Judith, uh, and we have two daughters, both in college, and so... Uh, we're thankful for the Lord's blessings upon us and uh, just for His His grace and mercy. I've heard good things about your church, so I'm delighted to be here this morning and uh, to have a chance to meet you in person, and I'm looking forward to enjoying some fellowship with you as well. This morning we'll be looking at the uh, book of Job, and uh, the title of my message is A Good God and an Evil World. I thought this might be appropriate, seeing that uh, you've been working through 1 Peter, which is a book about how believers in the early church faced suffering and adversity. And the book of Job is an Old Testament example of how God works uh, in the life of a believer when he brings suffering into our lives. And so this is a message that, in a way, is always appropriate, because many have pointed to the fact that we're often either... Uh, having come out of a trial, going through a trial, or about to go through a trial. And so often that seems to characterize our lives uh, when things seem to be neat and orderly. Often uh, tragedy or challenges strike. And so uh, we can learn much from the goodness of God as we look at this book. But I want to begin first by telling a story uh, related to this theme of suffering. If we could go to the next slide. Uh, if you can see that image and that picture behind me. Uh, this is a black and white photo, but it's taken from a small coal mining town named Aberfan, Wales. On a chilly October morning in 1966, four workers stopped to take a cup of tea in the middle of the morning. They were working on what coal miners call a tip. A tip is essentially a mound or a mountain created out of the waste byproduct of the coal mine. They would dump this material, it consisted of slurry, ash, and other things, and uh, as it grew and grew and grew, they would eventually cap it off and move on to another tip, or create another tip. And so this was the eighth tip that they had created in this town. It now rose 111 feet above the slope, giving the workers a wide view of the valley below. When the coal miners arrived on this particular morning to their tip, they noticed something that caused some measure of concern. The surface of the heap had lowered about 10 feet during the night. This could potentially mean something was happening underneath, and so they sent one of the workers to alert management. Uh, the phones weren't working, so he had to travel down into town and eventually bring back the foreman. It took about an hour and a half, and when the foreman got there, he made a judgment call that probably the tip had reached its limit, and so on the next, in the next week, they would start on a new tip. And so they decided that they would move the equipment and all that, but first they would stop and take a cup of tea. And as they were sipping their tea, one of the workers, a man named Gwyn Brown, looked up and saw something alarming. The heap was beginning to rise. It started to rise slowly, and then all of a sudden, it crested. And at the base of the tip, what had happened is thousands of tons of waste material had suddenly liquefied and collapsed. 
a dark, glistening wave burst out of the heap and started hurtling down the slope toward the town. The man, the man ran, shouting, trying to alert uh, the citizens down in the town who were on their way to school and on their way to work that tragedy was coming. They said the sound of it was tremendous like an aircraft as the tsunami of coal waste crested and began hurtling down toward the town. At about 9.15, it reached the primary school where classes had just begun 15 minutes earlier. The wave continued through the town, swamping houses, businesses, and cars along the way. And at the end, all told, 144 people were killed, including 116 children. In the aftermath of the tragedy, there were reporters and dignitaries who came from around the world to pay their respects and to cover what had taken place, the devastation. Uh, some of the officials even included a younger Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. One of the reporters was a 29-year-old photographer for Life magazine named Chuck Rappaport. He's the one who took this picture of the coal heap along with several other photographs from the town. I want to advance to the next slide. One of the photos that he took was of a man named John Collins. John Collins was an engineering inspector, and at the time of the tragedy, he was working in Cardiff, some miles away from the disaster. The slide in its path overtook his house on Moy Road, killing his wife and two sons. One of his sons was at home, the other was walking on his way to school. These were his only children. Everything he had was taken in this disaster. When Rappaport met him and took this photo, it was a month after the tragedy had happened. Collins was wearing a borrowed suit. He had literally no possessions to his name. He covers his face as he's stricken in grief. And you can get a sense from this picture of his deep anguish. Now that's a remarkable, devastating loss to contemplate. When we think about our lives, we sometimes have really bad days or even bad weeks, but to think about someone who literally loses everything in a moment, this is much like what happened to Job in this chapter that we'll look at this morning. When we think about such profound devastation and tragedy, one of the challenges, what can we say? How do we respond to someone who is so deeply affected by tragedy and anguish? What can we say? Well, one response that a believer should take is to look at Scripture. How can Scripture provide a resource for us in these times of suffering and difficulty? And we all will face challenges at one point or another in our lives. How do we face suffering how do we go through affliction? Well, I think the biblical book of Job has much to tell us about how to respond to suffering. We're going to focus this morning just on a small portion of the book, the opening chapter. There's a lot more in the course of the book as Job talks with his friends and ultimately the Lord himself appears in a whirlwind to speak to the three friends and Job. And we don't have time to cover all that this morning, but I want to look at chapter one as we set the stage for how do we face suffering, 
How do we navigate suffering as a believer? Job provides us some lessons and some applications that I want to look at this morning. So what I'd like to do is begin by reading the first 12 verses. I'll pause and I'll make some comments setting up the stage for the book. And then we'll look more intensively at at verses 13 to 22 this morning. The The book begins this way. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. And that man was the greatest of all the men of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. We're introduced here briefly to this character, Job. And we don't know a lot about him other than what is said here in the opening chapter. He is mentioned twice in other places in Scripture, in the book of Ezekiel and in the book of James. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel the prophet says that Job was a great intercessor. He makes a statement that even if Job were here to intercede for the nation, it wouldn't be enough. So Job was seen as a man of profound piety, deep prayer, a close relationship with the Lord. The other mention of Job is, of course, in the New Testament book of James. And James points to Job as a model of endurance, someone who persists in spite of suffering. James 5.11 says, You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So we pick up from Scripture that Job was indeed a godly man, a man of deep faith and a close relationship to the Lord. Now, the opening verse also tells us he comes from a land that has sort of a peculiar name, the land of us. What does this really mean? Well, if we had time to unpack all of Scripture, we would see that us is connected in other places with a nation or a country that went by the name of Edom. If you're really well read in your biblical history, you might remember that from the book of Genesis, The country of Edom descends from Jacob's brother Esau. So you have this rivalry between Jacob and Esau. The Israelites descend from Jacob 
the Edomites descend from Esau. Now, we don't know exactly when Job lived. Uh, Many of the practices that he engages in here would suggest it's fairly early in history. Somewhere between the time of Abraham and Moses is probably where I would put Job, most likely closer to Moses. So he comes from Edom, and this particular country, again, if you look at all of Scripture, had a certain reputation. There are two prophets that talk about Edom, Jeremiah and Obadiah. And in both cases, when they talk about Edom, they connect Edom to wisdom. Jeremiah and Obadiah both say wisdom will perish in the nation of Edom. So Edom had a reputation for wisdom. So gleaning what we can about Job, we know that he's a descendant of a nation that came from Esau, most likely, and that his nation was known as a nation of wise and insightful people. So Job is a godly man known probably for wisdom. There are four things that describe him in that opening verse. Blameless and upright, fearing God and turning from evil. Those are significant character traits. Blameless and upright, those two words appear elsewhere in Proverbs and other places to talk about someone who has integrity, someone who's godly. So we know Job was a man of of, of deep faith and character. He was a man of integrity. And then the last two phrases, fearing God and turning from evil, they turn up later in the book. In chapter 28, these words are used to describe what true wisdom is. In Job 28, 28, it says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, to turn from evil is understanding. So if we put all this together, essentially what the opening verse seems to say is, Job is likely a man of deep integrity, who has faith in the true God, who comes from a nation that is known to be wise, who has consistent integrity and character, and probably himself personifies this wisdom. And as we work through these opening chapters, we see this opening chapter, we see that he has great possessions. He's a man who takes care of uh, sacrificing sacrifices for his own children. He's concerned for his family. And then we see that he's about to be attacked by Satan in verses 6 to 12. Satan, the word here means adversary. Satan is the enemy of God and his people. He presents himself before God and he says, uh, what if I remove all these blessings? Won't Job curse you to your face? Now, there are a couple interesting things to see about this. Number one, it's the Lord himself that brings up Job, not Satan. The Lord is sovereign and he's the initiator. Even in this scene, he's directing the action. He's taking the first step. And we also see that he places a limit on Satan. He says in verse 12, everything he has is in your power, only don't put forth your hand on him. The reformer Martin Luther said about the devil, uh, even the devil is the Lord's devil. The Lord keeps him on a short leash. The Lord is in control even of what Satan can do here. So the Lord directs the action and Satan is now going to bring this trial or test to Job. So let's continue picking up in verse 13 and we'll spend a little bit more time on these verses. I'll read them and then make some comments on what's here. Verse 13, now on the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine 
in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, And he fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. We want to look more carefully at these verses 13 to 22. And if we could advance to the next slide uh, a few points here I'm going to make as, my, as I work my way through this, uh, some things to think about. If we had, had a, a chance, had the time to look at all the opening uh, action that takes place in Job 1 to 2, we would see there are five distinct scenes that take place. We could think of them as episodes in a TV series, maybe. Five scenes, and this particular scene, verses 13 to 22, is the central of the five scenes. It's the hinge on which the rest uh, are crafted around. And this scene is a very dramatic one. The narrator, the writer of the book, has very skillfully heightened the drama and the tension. We see this because it's barely at the conclusion of one disaster that the next survivor comes to report what took place. They come in succession. There are four catastrophes, and each one gets worse and worse and worse as it works through the four. Each messenger arrives before the previous one finishes. Each messenger is the only survivor, and Job does not react to any of them until he reacts to all of them. Cumulatively, the four catastrophes are one. Now, there's a lot I could say about this, and you know, I spend a lot of time getting into the weeds when it comes to biblical uh, literature and other things, and there's a lot of fascinating stuff that I could bring out here, but I want to just mention a few things. Number one, the number four seemed to be symbolic in the ancient world for total ruin or complete devastation. We see this in other biblical books like Ezekiel and Amos and Zechariah when four things are are mentioned in succession. They often spell total and complete ruin, and that's the sense we get here from Job. When we look carefully at the four things that happened to Job, there are some interesting patterns that emerge from this. 
One is that there's an alternation between humanly wrought disasters and what we could only call acts of God or divinely wrought disasters. What I mean by that is we have first Sabaeans who attack them. Then we have lightning or fire that falls from heaven. Then we have the Chaldeans and then we have the whirlwind that attacks the house. Each of these disasters comes from a different point of the compass. We could say they come from north, south, east, west, knowing uh, where these things originate. Storms usually came from the west, whirlwinds from the east, and these marauders would come either from the north or the south. And so Job's getting attacked from every direction. The value of the things that are lost are successively greater as each catastrophe unfolds. It starts with the oxen and donkey, moves to the sheep, and then the camels. The camels were like luxury items in the ancient world. They would have been the most value of, valuable of the animals he held. But then the capstone is his own children. His own children are taken in the final one. And the tragedies touch each area of economic uh, trade that Job would have engaged in, crops, as well as uh, herds, trade. The camels were involved in the spice trade usually, and then household labor, his own family. And with each catastrophe, as I said before, the drama escalates. A sole survivor reaches Job just as one is finishing to say that he alone has escaped and that everything else has been taken. Looking back now at verse 13, I want to just make some comments as we work through this. Verse 13 says, Now on the day his sons and daughters were eating and drinking. Well, earlier in the chapter we saw that there would typically be a time or a day when they would meet together, the sons and the daughters, to have a meal together, to celebrate. And so this is the particular day probably that they meet, likely connected to uh, the house of the eldest brother. What this means is that Job's cycle of sacrifices that verses 4 and 5 talk about has likely been completed. So it's sort of like a clue that everything is, is just fantastic in Job's world. Everything is neat and orderly. He's made a sacrifice for his family. They're all together celebrating. This is a high point for Job, everything seems to be just as he would want it to be. It almost seems like the opening of a Hallmark movie. They're feasting, they're having a good time, and suddenly disaster strikes. Looking at verse 14, a messenger now comes to Job. What's interesting about this is if we think about this in terms of camera angles and episodes and those sorts of things, the, the focus of the camera is always on Job throughout this narrative. In other words, the messenger comes to Job. So if you can imagine we were seeing this on the screen, we would have a close-up of Job throughout this entire process to see how he reacts to the news of each four messengers as they come. We don't switch scenes out to the field and back. It's focusing on Job. How is he going to react? And each messenger brings a report. It's, it's very tightly woven. There are three parts to it. He arrives, he reports what happened, and then he says, I am the only survivor. There's no dramatic flourishes. It's just the facts that he brings, the disaster that has struck. And so this first one involves, verse 14, the oxen and the donkeys. Now, what does this mean? We're 
likely not involved in agriculture too much. Maybe some in here are farmers. I grew up in upstate New York where most of the uh, people I went to church with were farmers and teachers. My first job was baling hay, so I worked a little bit on a farm. But in my current life, I don't really have much interaction with livestock, so what does this mean? Well, the oxen would typically plow, and the donkeys would bring the materials. So what this suggests is it's late fall, maybe November-ish time frame when this happens. Typically, the donkeys would bring seed to the field, and the oxen would plow so that the seed could be put into the ground. This would happen during uh, the early part of the agricultural cycle. Now, the oxen, the word here for oxen is male, and the word for donkeys is, is feminine, which means they were female donkeys, which suggests they were more valuable uh, as, a, as a, a livestock. And so they would typically bring the seed the oxen would be plowing. And it says here that Sabaeans attacked and took them, verse 15, and they even slew the servants with the edge of the sword. Now, a couple things that are interesting about this. Who are the Sabaeans? Well, they probably came from the modern country of Yemen, and they're connected to another name in, in biblical literature called Sheba. Sheba, if you remember a little bit of uh, the biblical story, Sheba had a queen who came to Solomon and saw all his wisdom and was amazed. It says in 1 Kings she was left breathless by what she had seen. In Psalm 72, which is a psalm, to Solomon or by Solomon, Sheba is also mentioned as those who will bring gold and tribute to the king. So typically in, in biblical wisdom connected to Solomon, Sheba brings gold and comes to hear the wisdom. But here it's ironically reversed. They're the ones stealing possessions from Job and slaughtering his servants. Now, this typically wouldn't have happened this way in the ancient world. In other words, typically marauders like this would have taken the valuable things, but not slaughtered the servants. So this is a particularly violent encounter that the Sabaeans engage in. They take the lives of the servants. Only one is left, and he brings the news. This takes us to the next tragedy. Verse 16, while he was still speaking, another came and said, the fire of God, or a, a great fire fell from heaven, burned up the sheep and servants, and I alone have escaped. This Literally, fire of God has consumed both the sheep and the servants. It's unclear exactly what this is. Some have suggested a volcano may have erupted or maybe a meteor came. But we just don't have a lot of evidence as to what this was. Uh, but this, a similar phrase is used in Genesis 19 for the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what this suggests is it's a terrible disaster. A fireball of some sort comes from the sky and it destroys everything. It incinerates the animals and the people. He finishes his story and then verse 17 tells us the next is there. Verse 17, while he's still talking, another came and said the Chaldeans formed three bands. They made a raid on the camels. They took them and they slew the servants. Now, who are the Chaldeans? The Chaldeans were a marauding people who lived probably to the east of where Job would have been, and they typically uh, would take livestock in raids like this. The fact that they divide into three companies suggests this is an organized strategic attack that's brutal. 
and very targeted. They take everything. The camels are the most expensive of the livestock Job would have had. And so they take this, these animals in a complete surprise, and Job is left with nothing uh, of his livestock. But it's about to get worse. Look at verse 18. While he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine. Verse 19, Behold, a great wind came from across the desert or the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. It fell on the young people and they died. This is the climax of the scene. This report is the longest of any of the reports. And it's the most significant blow to Job, it's the loss of his own family. The structure is a little bit different because it almost seems to start on a positive note. Verse 18, they're eating and drinking, which takes us back to the opening, verse 13, to suggest this is a, a happy moment when the family is together and eating a meal. But then it turns terribly in a devastating direction, and we see the word Behold, behold, a great wind came. Whenever the word behold is used in in, uh, the Bible, it draws our attention to something significant that's about to be reported or told. The last time the word behold was used was earlier when the Lord said, Behold, everything is in your power, only don't strike him. So this behold almost links us back in our mind to verse 12 where the Lord says to Satan, You can attack him, just don't touch Job himself. And so this wind comes. Now, if you've ever been in the desert or in a place where it's very windy, uh, we used to live out in California, and uh, we would go around to the desert sometimes. I remember stopping once uh, for fuel in a little town called Baker, California, and the temperature was 115 degrees, and the wind was blowing. And I told my wife as I got out to get gas, it felt like a giant hairdryer was just blasting me the whole time. Well, often these whirlwinds can, can occur and they'll create this circular pattern. And this is probably why all four corners of the house are struck at the same time. And the house collapses. It collapses. It falls on the young people and they die. And Job now is left alone. As I said earlier, we've had a close-up on him the whole time, and now we finally get to see him react. What is Job going to do? Is he going to beat his chest? Is he going to fall down and collapse? Is he going to curse God as Satan said he would do? What is Job going to do? Look at verse 20. Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell to the ground, and he didn't die. He worshiped. He worshiped. Job gets up. He tears his robe. He's going through uh, the rituals of bereavement and grief in the ancient world. It's not exactly clear why people would tear their garments when they were grieving. We see this a lot, though, in Scripture. Uh, One idea is it's sort of just an emotional release from the pain and anguish that you're suffering. Typically, they would also shave their head, and they would sometimes put dust on their head, and this seemed to uh, just denote the fact that they were humbling themselves. It was a way of identifying 
with the dead in some way and, and saying that I recognize my own dependence and neediness and submission. And so here he does these things. He falls on the ground and he worships. Now, it's interesting that he falls to the ground because this is the fourth time something has fallen in the story. The Sabaeans uh, and the fire fell and then the house fell and now Job falls. And we might expect, like in the other disasters, Job would collapse and just give up. But instead, it says he, he worships. This literally means he bows to the ground. He expresses his humility and dependence on God. He reverently prays to God in submission. And he says this in verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan expected Job to curse God. And instead, what Job does is essentially blesses God. He praises him. He said, I came into the world naked. I'm going to leave the world naked. There's a, there's a commonality in how one comes into the world and how one leaves the world. That is humbly with vulnerability and weakness, complete human Dependence, the idea of nakedness is a metaphor in Scripture for being completely dependent upon others. And he says, everything that I have essentially is from the Lord. He gave it to me. Now he's taken it away from me. And in the end of the day, I'm going to bless his name. I'm not going to curse him. And then verse 22 says, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. That Last phrase literally means he didn't ascribe to God or, or blame God with something uh, revolting or something nasty. He, in other words, he didn't say, God robbed me, God's at fault. He didn't blame God. He said, God gave it to me, God's taken it from me. I'm going to bless God rather than curse God. Now, as we end this chapter and as we think about Job's response, in a way, it's very remarkable right? It's, it's pretty amazing. Job has lost everything except for his wife, and she'll appear in chapter 2. As we go further along, we'll see that not only this, but Job himself will suffer because he'll be stricken with boils, and he'll have a lot of physical pain as a result of that. But at this point in the story, Job has not sinned with his lips. And we might take away from this idea the idea that what, what we should do in suffering, what Job does, is essentially just have a stiff upper lip, right? Be a stoic. Just don't say anything. Just bow down and worship. But as we work our way through the book, and we don't have time to develop all of this this morning, but as we work our way through the book, we learn that as Job processes the grief, his words begin to become more and more pointed toward God. I want to read just a few other things that Job says as, as we work through the book. Uh, in chapter 6, for instance, in chapter 6 and verse 4, he says this, The arrows of the Almighty are within me. Their poison my spirit drinks. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. In chapter 9, in chapter 9, verses 17 to 19, he says this, he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness. 
If it is a matter of power, behold, he is the strong one. It is, if it is a matter of justice, who can summon him? In chapter 16, he says that God has broken through against him. In verses 11 to 14, God hands me over to ruffians and tosses me into the hands of the wicked. He essentially says, God has delivered me to evildoers. He says, he's grasped my, me by the neck and shaken me to pieces. And then in chapter 19, Job essentially says, if I could, if I could appear before God, I would tell him that he's wronged me. He says this in chapter 19, 6 to 10. Know then that God has wronged me. He has closed his net around me. Behold, I cry violence, but I get no answer. I shout for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He has put darkness on my path. Verse 10, he breaks me down on every side. I am gone. He has uprooted my hope like a tree. As Job processes his grief, he's wrestling with anguish throughout the book. And it's a bit tricky because when we get to the end of the book, the Lord seems to condemn Job's friends, but not Job himself. And yet Job says some very pointed things to the Lord as he wrestles with his grief and anguish. So what can we learn from Job's struggle? What I want to suggest this morning is that Job has a remarkable lesson for us about how to grasp with an evil world while still understanding that God is good. Isn't it true that one of the first things that we often think of or encounter when we're going through affliction is, why is this happening to me? As we process that thought, a second thought that often comes is something along the lines of, is God really a good God to me? When I'm suffering in adversity and it seems like the world is falling in on me, we're often tempted in those moments to say, is God really sovereign and good? And in fact, this is uh, an attack that many in our day make on religion itself. They ask questions like, how do you reconcile a sovereign God with evil in the world? Many skeptic philosophers over the centuries have questioned Christianity on these grounds. One was a man named David Hume, and he asked a series of questions that sort of encapsulates this. He said, is God willing to prevent evil but unable to do so? Willing but unable. Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able to prevent evil but unwilling? Able but unwilling. Then he is malevolent. Is God both willing and able to prevent evil? Then whence evil? Why is there evil in the world? Now, we could talk a lot about a lot of issues related to this, and I would bring up the fact that uh, there's really no other religion that has a satisfactory answer either. And ultimately, the answer revolves around the cross of Christ, the act of greatest evil combined with the greatest good in human history. But I think the book of Job also tells us something about suffering and evil and helps us to sort through these questions. And so I want to conclude today by thinking about some applications that we can draw from the life of Job and the book of Job as we think about it. If we could advance to the next slide. So uh, this may seem like a lot. I'm just going to touch on a couple things that I think the book of Job teaches us and then tie this together. 
The first is this. Although much suffering, much human suffering remains in the realm of mystery, suffering may be used by God as a vehicle to transform the sufferer. In other words, suffering in the life of the believer often leads to the transformation of the sufferer. And I think we see this in in the life of Job. When we get to the end of the book, Job has said some very pointed and anguished things to God. And yet at the end of the book, he again submits to the Lord. He says this, I had heard of you by my hearing, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Throughout the course of the book, Job has grown from someone who initially worships God to, in anguish, cries out to God, to again, at the end, submits to God and recognizes God is sovereign, God is good. He submits to God. He says, all glory goes to God. I repent in dust and ashes. He doesn't get the answers to his questions, right? That's an important point in the book of Job. God never says, this is why you suffered. He never pulls back the curtain for Job to understand fully what's going on. And yet Job is satisfied because he's experienced the presence of God himself. Number two, the book of Job emphasizes that all suffering falls within the domain, the purview of God's sovereignty. Job never says anything in the book that would suggest that God is less than sovereign. In fact, the whole point of Job's anguish is not because God couldn't have prevented this because he wasn't powerful enough to do so, but he knows God is sovereign. And he's wrestling with a God who's sovereign, a God who's in control, and yet allows things like adversity to come. And I think a lesson for this for us is sometimes when we're faced with tragedy, we just don't know what the Lord is doing. We ought to be careful Uh, and not do what Job's friends do and rush to assume we can understand everything God has in mind for the tragedy that we're suffering. In other words, we don't know all the reasons God is doing what he's doing. And I think it's okay sometimes just to say, I don't know what the Lord is doing here, but we trust God is good and we trust he will bring this to a good conclusion. Number three, the author's focus on the righteousness of Job points to the reality there is such a thing as Innocent suffering. And again, this is where I would say uh, we ought to be careful to us- not to assume that we can pinpoint the reason why God allows tragedy to happen. Uh, as I've lived my life, I've seen this from time to time when a disaster strikes and a Christian leader will say something to the effect of, well, this probably happened because those people somehow were particularly egregious or sinful And immediately, I think of Job's friends. That's essentially what they were doing. They were assuming they could understand a cause and effect relationship. And so I think we have to understand from the book of Job that sometimes we suffer because we sin. But in a broken, fallen world, sometimes we just suffer. And sometimes God has reasons that we'll never know. And so we ought to be careful uh, against assuming we know all the reasons. Number four, no amount of preparation will galvanize the sufferer for the actual experience. And this is why when we're dealing with those in anguish, one of the best things to do, I think, is just to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to be careful in what we say, to share scripture, and to share love, and to share presence, and uh, to 
sympathize with the sufferer as best we can without assuming that we understand completely what everything that they're going through. Uh, number five, there is space in suffering for lament. Sometimes uh, in Christian circles, we approach suffering and we act as if unless we act stoically throughout the whole encounter, we're somehow not living up to a biblical ideal. But when we look at the Psalms and we look at Job, I think there's space in suffering for lament, for grappling with God. And then the last two, for the believer, suffering leads to greater faith rather than the loss of faith. Suffering leads to a deeper walk with the Lord. And then number seven, God is gracious and compassionate toward the sufferer. We know how the book ends. God restores what Job had before. And some have questioned how the book ends, saying, well, doesn't that suggest that in the end, Job really does get rewarded for his faith and piety? But I would say, no, what it shows is that God is free to show grace to whomever he wills. God is compassionate. God is kind. And in the end, the book ends with God being good to Job once again and revealing his kindness and his goodness. And ultimately, as believers, we know that God is good and that all things work together for our good because God is good. Now, you remember at the opening this morning, I showed a picture of a man named John Collins who had lost everything in Aberfan, Wales. As a result of that article and those pictures, a widow in the Czech Republic sent John Collins a letter. They began a correspondence and over the course of a few years got to know each other, ended up marrying, having a family. And when Chuck Rappaport did an anniversary edition of that article, he was contacted by one of the children of John Collins to say, as a result of your original story, my parents came together and ultimately good came out of it. When we think about scripture, we know that on the human plane, if that is true, how much more for us as we suffer, the Lord is doing something in our lives to produce good and not evil. So I want to encourage us this morning, take heart from the book of Job. You may be going through some deep waters, but God is sovereign. God is wise. God is good. We may not understand everything God is doing, but we trust God is working out all things for his glory and for our ultimate good. And we can echo with Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Let the name of the Lord be praised. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder this morning from your word, and I pray that you take this word through the work of your spirit, apply it to our hearts, help us to be changed more into the image of Christ. May we love you more. May our faith be strengthened. May our walk with you be deepened. May you be glorified in our lives as we remember all the grace that you've shown us, all the mercy you've lavished upon us. And so we thank you for your goodness and kindness, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.